evil of others. Did you hear that? Do not speak evil of others. Say it with me because I want to make sure you got this. Do not speak evil of others. Now, look at verse 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now, I gotta tell you, I think that James is kind of getting a little bit soft in his old age because just a couple of verses before, he was calling us adulterers, right? And at least now he's softening up a little bit and he's beginning to call, talk to us as brothers. Now, it's vital that we know exactly what he's commanding us not to do. So let me lay this out for you. See the phrase, speak evil against uh, literally, some translations uh, translate that uh, this way: uh, to 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 not um, uh, to uh, to not slander another person. So, in 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 the simplest form, he's referring to talking against other people in a disparaging way, with the intention of putting them down. Do you know what that is? Do you know what that looks like? Have you have you ever heard that? Seen that? So let, let me reword it for you just to make sure we understand because you don't look like you're understanding. So let a sinner explain what slander is, okay? Slander is speaking about somebody else, being overly critical of somebody else in your speech, being judgmental in your speech for the purpose of harming somebody else's reputation and what others think on them. Now you got it, okay? So that's what he's telling us not to do. Now, let me tell you what I don't believe the command includes. I think this is what he's not saying. I don't think he's suggesting that it would always be wrong for us to talk about other believers. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? You shouldn't be talking about people. You shouldn't be talking about people. But I don't think it's always wrong. I don't think that's what the command is. In other words, if I were to sit there and say, hey, um, hey, um, Brother Tom, just coming up to you, man. I just want to let you know that, you know, the staff, uh, you know, Dan's going through some difficult times. Hey, brother, do you mind just as a brother in Christ praying for him and, and just kind of undergirding him? He's going to be fine, uh, but would you mind praying for him? Now, I just talked about Dan, but would that be a wrong thing to be able to do? I don't think so. I don't think it was out of spite. It wasn't out to harm him. It, it didn't break confidence with him. I didn't say what it was that he was struggling with. It was just truly seeking his help as another brother in Christ to go before God and to be able to pray. So he's not suggesting that it's always wrong to talk about another brother and sister in Christ. I don't think as well, I don't think he's, he's commanding us to never make some type of judgment concerning the sin of other brothers in Christ either. In fact, and I want to be very careful with this, I dare say that the Bible actually says that one of our responsibilities as believers is to make some type of judgment concerning the sins of each other. Now, I need to be careful here, right? Because but you say, well, where do we see that? couple examples. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. When you go there, what you find is, is Jesus says this. He says, beware of false prophets, all right? So we need to be able to recognize who the false prophets are. Well, how in the world do you recognize and how in the world can you be wary of false prophets if you don't make some type of judgment concerning what the person says and concerning what the person does according to the word of God? You've got to have some kind of judgment to realize that those people are not the real deal. Let me give you another example. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 talks about the process of church discipline, all right? It's when somebody is an open, blatant sin in a church and they refuse to repent and give their life right. I'm not talking about struggling, just, just blatant sin, all right? So what do you do? It says, first of all, go to them. Go to them, confront them with the sin. Number two, if they don't listen to that, then take two or three and go to them. If they still don't listen, still refuse to repent, bring them before the church right? And if they still don't listen to the whole body of the whole church, it says set them out and treat them as an unbeliever. Rough stuff, but here's my question. How do you know if, if you need to discipline somebody 
if you haven't made some type of judgment concerning what it is that they're saying and what it is that they're doing. No, no, God, we, we as believers have to make certain types of judgments. What he's saying, though, is we have to make the right kind of judgment. I think he says that clearest in John chapter 7 and verse 24. There he says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Did you see that? Make a right judgment? Certain types of judgments towards each other that we should make that are right. There are certain ones that are wrong. What is that? Judging people just by the way that they look and and what they wear. That certainly would have pertained to the people in James' time, right? And so, so what we find is this, is I say all that, but I know in the back of your mind you're sitting there going, man, this seems to be contradictory to the word. Because we all know what Matthew 7, 1 says, don't we? We know what Matthew, we know what Matthew 7, 1 says. You go, no, nah, I don't know what that means. Let me say it. You'll know it. Judge not, lest, there we go, lest you be judged. Oh, I didn't know that was Matthew 7, 1. That's where it is, all right? Matthew 7, 1, judge not, lest you be judged. Isn't it interesting that 20 years ago, for we who were alive, knew what the most well-known verse in Scripture was? What was it? John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. What a great verse. You know what the most well-known, recognized verse is in America today? Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you be judged. My goodness, how far we've come. We went from celebrating the goodness and the grace towards sinners to now trying to deny all guilt of being a sinner. And guess what? The reason, I don't even want to think of myself as a sinner to the point is I don't want you to remind me that I'm a sinner either. So we've come a far way with that. But what do we do with that verse? Because we know in John 7, 24, he said to make a right judgment. And here in Matthew 7, 1, he's saying, don't judge. So what do we do? We understand it through the context, right? And, and people for, failed to read the rest of the context. And I, I find great joy in explaining the context to people that use that verse out of context. So when they say, judge not lest you be judged, I say to them, I said, well, who is he speaking to? Have you read the rest of the verses? And no, of course. They're like, are, are there more verses? What's a verse? All right. So the rest of it says this. He, he, the, what he's doing is he's, he's warning people who are judging others okay, without first rightly judging themselves. He says to them, he says it like this, he says, he says, you guys are judging other ones and you've got this, they've got little bits of sin in them and you are completely saturated with sin, but yet you're judging them instead of first judging yourself. This is how he says it. He says, why do you who have a log in your eye try to remove the speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye? He goes, first, now here's the judgment part. He doesn't say don't judge at all. He says, first, remove the log of your own eye so then you can do what? Help, see clearly to help your brother to remove the speck out of his eye. Man, get your life right first. Walk before God. Make sure that the sin that you see in somebody else isn't the very sin that, that you are most guilty of. That's, that's where he's trying to, 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 to drive here. And so, so what we find is all, it's, not all sin, it's not all judgment that he's calling us not to, not, not to take part in. It's a right judgment. Now, this kind of slander that we're talking about, talking about somebody and, and slandering them and, and saying wicked things in order to be able to tear them down. Apparently, um, the Bible knows that we're guilty quite a bit of this. Because when you begin to research, you find it everywhere, all right? You go all the way back to Leviticus nineteen sixteen. God says to his people, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Paul says, when he's writing to the Corinthians, that he's afraid to come to them. Can you imagine? I'm afraid to come to you guys. 
Why? He goes, because I know that when I come, I'm bound to find factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Peter, when he writes his epistle, 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and slander of every kind. Because those commands are found so much in the word of God, we know at least two things. The first thing that we know is that God hates the sin. The second thing we know is that God's people suffer from that sin greatly. Talking instantly, constantly, downing other people in their face and behind their back as well. Sometimes we don't even know we do it. It's just such a part of life. We just have critical things to say. I'm talking about that critical spirit. They don't do this well, or they don't do that well, or they're failing this, or they're failing at parenting, or they're failing in marriage, or they're failing this. And, and, and we're, we're so, that's such a normal part of life that oftentimes we don't even recognize that we're guilty of it. Let me give you one more point of clarification here. The word slander literally defined is this way. Malicious speech that is, now check this out, is untrue. It's untrue. Now, now this, is where, this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy because people will sit there. You've ever heard this phrase? It ain't gossip if it's true, right? It's not, in other words, okay, it's not gossip if it's true. You're right. Technically, it's not gossip if it's true. Maybe it's not slander if it's, if it's true because saying saying false things we know is a sin, right? But how about tearing down another person? What about wearing them out? What about changing the view of other people and how they view that person all because of what it is that's coming out of your mouth? Clearly it's sin. James isn't just talking about, about slander in, in, in the most definitive sense. I think it goes beyond that. I think he says, man, look, if you're talking about somebody else, whether it's true or whether it's untrue, but it's done with an attitude to destroy and tear down and belittle, and it's done from a critical spirit. He goes, it's sin. Either way, either way, it's sin. Now, my question is this. If, if the Bible warns so much against it, and we struggle against it, is there anybody here that would at least nod that, hey, man, this is an issue for all of us. Is, is there anybody that would at least, man, this is an issue for all of us. Then my question is, why? Why is it an issue? Why is it something that we struggle with so often and so many times? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think there's a lot of answers to that. I really do. But do you know what I think the biggest reasons we, we stumble in this particular sin is because we love to push others down to make ourselves look better. Instead of us really attempting to be honest and really looking into our life and dealing with our own sin and doing business with God, isn't it a lot more comfortable just to look at how, how bad everybody else is and how everybody else is failing? That's not nearly as painful to me than to look at my own faults. This is what Jesus says. I love Jesus' parable when he's speaking of the Pharisees who prayed. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. Do you hear it in him? Do you hear it in him? Push him down to be able to raise them all up, himself up. We justify ourselves by judging others. We seek to lift up our reputations by lowering others. And we seek to promote ourselves by demoting others others. That's what the scriptures say. And so now we see why this command is so closely related to the subject of humility that came right before it. You remember what James said just a couple of verses before? It said that God rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James is telling us right now, if you are going around being critical and judging everybody else for the purpose to destroy them, he goes, you are moving yourself in a dangerous place. You're moving yourself outside of the place of grace and you're exalting yourself. 
That's not the place we need to be. So what is his saying? Here, here's what, here it is again. Do not speak evil against one another. That's the command. Now let's look to see how this works. He's gonna give us two reasons for this. I just kind of alluded to it. You're moving yourself out of the place of grace. Where grace, Remember, grace is like water. It always flows down. If we're gonna receive the grace of God, where do we have to be? Humble before God. When we are talking about other people, it takes us out of that place. Now notice, first of all, first reason, we set ourselves above the law. We set ourselves above the law. Now, notice what he says. James writes, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, who, who are you? Excuse me. You are not a doer of the law, he goes, but a judge. Now, what does he mean by all this? What does he mean when he uses the phrase, speaks evil against the law? How, how in the world is me speaking against you or you speaking against me the same as speaking against God's Law, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Where's the connection in this? Well, I think the key is to understand what he means by the law. When you look to the New Testament, almost every New Testament author uses the word law to refer to all the Old Testament writings. Okay, just a big general God's law. There it is, all right? James is probably using it in the same sense, but I think he's using it in a more particular way. I think what he's using it well is he's using it to describe what we call the royal law. That's what he began to describe and what we talked about in chapter two and verse eight. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, then he mentioned what it is. No, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me give you a little rundown because I know not everybody was there. Here's what we said about the royal law. One day, Jesus, somebody approached Jesus and they said, master, good teacher. They said, listen, what's the greatest commandment? We've got all of these commandments. What is the greatest commandment for us to be able to follow? Jesus, without a beat, says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But you know what? There's a second one. You asked me the first. That's the first. But there's a second one that's just like it. Very important. What did he say? To love your neighbor as yourself. This is what he was saying. You take all the laws of God and you boil them down into the smallest, really common denominators. And he says there too, it's loving God and loving each other. And the way we know that we love God is by loving each other. You guys, you guys catch that? So what we do, this, you want to know if you're living the Christian life? What do you do in the Christian life? You're living a life, you're seeking to do everything you can to build them up, to love them, to bless them, to help them. That, that's what the Christian life looks like. Because if you're following the law of God, you should be a builder. He says, but now, here's the key. If you begin to talk down to people, are you building them up or are you tearing them down? Are you blessing them or are you cursing them? And he says, so what you're doing is when you and I begin to speak towards other people and down to other people, he says, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. He says, what you're doing is you're making a definitive statement and decision in your mind to no longer submit yourself to the law of God by blessing others. But now what you've done is you set yourself above the law and now you're determining what is right and what is ultimately wrong. Now, James shows us, James, or Paul shows us what it looks like to clearly submit to this. That's what it looks like not to submit, to place yourself above the law. Here's what it looks like to submit under the law. He says, no, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. So notice this. Did you, did you notice this last little phrase? He says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You know what he's saying? He says, our, the whole purpose why we're here is not just to learn, is not just to argue, is not just to debate the word of God and what it says. Here's the purpose of the law for you and I, to obey the law. 
And he goes, and if you and I are dogging on each other, I say that for the young people, dogging on each other, dissing on each other, ragging on each other, whatever word you want to be able to use for it. He says, you are not submitting to God and you're taking yourself out of the place of grace. Second thing, second reason, number two, God, and this is even worse. He says, when you begin to talk towards other people, down on other people, begin to be critical and judgmental about who they are and what they do, and you're judging them in that way, he says, here's the problem. You set yourself above the law, but even worse, you set yourself up above God. Now look at the verse, verse 12. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. That's both convicting and comforting, right? It's a great reminder. Can we just be reminded today there's only one God? That nobody in here, neither you or I, are God. Just, just want to make sure we understand that, okay? Are we on the same page? Okay, so that means that there is only one that has the right to determine what is right and what is wrong, and he is God, not you and not I. But this is where we always get it wrong. This is where sinful mankind always gets it wrong. When you look to the book of Judges, chapter 17 and verse 6, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That verse describes a time in Israel's history when there was literally no king, so everything was falling apart. Everything was falling apart because there was no king to establish the law of what was right and what was wrong, so everybody did what was right in their own eyes, not only for their own life, but they also imposed their belief system on everybody else. Here's what they would do. They would sit back and go, I I know what's right and wrong for my life, which means I know what's right and wrong for your life and for your life and for your life. And they begin to judge each other. And this is what he's trying to get out. James is saying, you don't have that authority. God is the only authority. There is only one giver of the law and there's only one judge. Just a minute ago, I said, man, this is both discouraging and encouraging. Let me discourage you. All right, you're like, dude, you've already been doing that. All right, well, well, let let me discourage you a little bit more. You are a horrible God. You stink, man. You're awful at being God. You, you don't often know what is right and wrong within yourself. You, you don't have the power to do anything about it. You don't judge yourself righteously and justly, and you don't judge other people with grace and mercy. You're a horrible God. Quit doing it. That's the call. Some of you are tearing your kids to shreds with your mouth with your criticism, with your judging. Some of you are tearing other believers. Some of you run your mouth so much, I'm just being real with you, so much that you literally, your kids are are, are hearing you do it and they're gonna be the same way you are. Pathetic, running down, judgmental, hard on other people, critical spirit inside of you. He sits there and says, let me discourage you to cease from doing that. That's what James wants you to be. Second thing is this. Let me encourage you. You know what's so great about having only one God who determines what is right and wrong and then therefore judges it? You only have to live for one God. Somebody asked me this morning, they said, Pastor Mike, they said, man, sometimes in my job and and things, I just get so discouraged. He goes, goes, let me ask you this question. How do you stay encouraged as a pastor? You know, and and I wanted to, you know, and, and, and at first I thought to myself, Bro, I'm not always encouraged, you know? And I'm not talking about by other people. I said, I just don't always feel encouraged just within myself. And I think the reason is because like you, I'm like you, I don't want people to be disappointed. You guys feel that? 
I, I want people to be pleased by who I am and by what it is that I do. But can I tell you that? Whenever I live that way, I live in a constant state of discouragement. But what encourages me is to recognize that there is only one God, one lawgiver, one judge. And when I find myself just living for him, that's where I find the encouragement. You with me? Because I know what kind of God he is. Now listen, he not only is only one to give the law, but he's the only one to enforce the law. Notice very quickly, James writes, he who is able to save and to destroy. The Bible, again, throughout, keeps saying there's only one, one person, one, one individual, one being that has the right to give life and to be able to take it away. Who is it? God. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, uh, Samuel's mother Hannah, she acknowledges in her prayer, she says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. Jesus says to his followers, he warns them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus warns his followers not to fear man who can kill the body, but to fear God who can destroy both soul and the body in hell. What's he doing? Here's what he's just saying once again. He's saying, you're judging, you're being critical, but you don't have the right or the authority or the power to be able to do so. So he sums up by asking this, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to do it? You're not in the position. You're not the lawgiver. You don't have the authority to be able to do something about it if they break the law. Then who are you? I think, all this, I think this whole story can be summed up in one story. We're gonna close down with this. In the Bible, there is a story about Jesus. He's sitting there and he's, touch, he's teaching the crowds. And all of a sudden, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes take a woman who's been caught literally in the act of adultery. So this isn't like, hey, we heard, we heard you know, some things were going on here. This is literally, they barge in, they grab the woman, all right, in the, in the act of adultery. They bring her scantily clad, whatever, and they throw her down at the feet of Jesus, okay? And then they sit there and they say, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says that we should stone her, all right? Now, now what's interesting is they came with their own stones, all right, they, 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 they've got stones in their hands. Some of them have been waiting for this day. They love stonings. They're looking for the opportunity. Some of them probably have designer stones, right? I mean, they probably, like, like some of us have like gun cases, not me, but other people, all right, have gun cases, and you put what's precious in there. They probably open up, and they go, let me show you my stone collection. You know, here's a one-pounder, half, you know, six-ouncer. This is a Two-pounder, two-pounder, you got a two-pounder? Yeah, I upgraded last year, and man, it's sweet. Look at, look at the texture on that thing. Oh, dude, that kills, man. Yeah, you're right. That's what I hope to do. Haven't used it yet? Nah, man, haven't got a chance to go to the range yet, uh, but always looking for the opportunity to be able to use it. Well, this day comes. Grab your favorite stone. It's stoning time, right? So they come out. This poor girl is there. Think of her. Caught in the very act of adultery, humiliated. And here's the crazy thing I want you to see. She's guilty. What they're saying is not untrue. But how are they saying it? Are they trying to restore her? Are they trying to build her up? Are they trying to bless her? No, they're invidiously trying to tear her apart and tear her to shreds. They're ready to kill this woman. Then Jesus stops, sits down, begins to write in the sand. We're not going to talk about that because nobody knows what he writes. All right, all speculation. He writes, whatever it is, tic-tac-toe, whatever, all right? So he gets done, he gets up, and here's what he says. 
He who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. Now, let me tell you why this is so brilliant. Because what we find is, at that point, beginning with the oldest ones, they begin to drop their stone. Ding, 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 ding. Someone probably took it with them. You know, because this is my stone, my two-pounder. All right, so some, they, they begin to just drop them, and they begin to leave from the oldest to the youngest. Now, what's, what's the point? I think, I think the inference was clear. They left, and they dropped the stones because they understood they forfeited their rights to judge by their own wrongs. What Jesus did was he was bringing them back to James' point. You don't have the right to judge because you yourself are in need of judgment. You're not in the position to be able to do it. So here's the weird thing to me. Everybody there with stones had no right to judge, but yet they were so willing to be able to do it. And the one who was perfect and had no sin had no stone. All he had was more grace. He said to her, he says, does no one condemn you? She goes, no one, sir. Why? They can't condemn her. They can't condemn her because of the sin in their own life. And he goes, neither do I. Neither do I. Now, neither do I means I have the right to condemn you. I have the right to judge you. I have the right to stone you and kill you. In fact, you're deserving of the very thing, but I have not come to judge. I have come to give my life as a ransom and to save you. He says, go and sin no more. You know what, guys? You say, what's the key? Man, Mike, Brother Mike, in my heart of hearts, it's so hard. I find myself constantly being critical of each other. What's the key for me to lay down these stones and being so critical of other people? <laughs> Here's the deal. Forfeit your rights by recognizing your wrongs. Spend more time in seeing, man. You've got so much to work on. You've got so much sin for God to be able to cut after you. You don't have time in this lifetime for you to be freed up to be able to go after somebody else and be critical of them. Be freed up. I love that for all of us, you know, and if you're to that point, here's what Jesus would say to you. Hey, man, go and sin no more. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, Jesus Christ died for you in order for you to be able to go free. Jesus Christ, who could have condemned you, didn't condemn you, but allowed himself to be condemned on a cross so that you could go free. Not only that you could go free and escape the judgment, but that you could go free and be free of sin. Go and sin no more. This morning, we have the power not only of forgiveness, but we have the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit to empower you to control the tongue. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to come and to be able to deliver it. Now, God, as we come together and as we're about to take of the Lord's Supper, now has got to be a moment. Now has got to be a time that every person in this place does business with you, that everybody's looking before you. God, maybe there's some. I, I wonder if there might be some that don't know you this morning. If they were to die, they, they have no idea where eternity would be. They have no idea how they would spend the rest of eternity and God, they don't know where they are with you. God, I would love to talk with them. I'd love to pray with them. God, would you give them the grace and the mercy to, to be honest before themselves and to seek help? God, there are some of us here that just recently, I mean, this word was for all of us, but for some, it was particularly for them. Struggling being critical, struggling running people down. God, would we recognize that we're not God, that that's not our place? 
and would we submit to you in your word. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? I'm going to be down here. I would love to pray for you, but the altars are open for you to pray. First service, we had several come just to be able to pray. Guys, no matter what, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. The Bible says to analyze and judge yourself to make sure you are right in the faith before we take. Now's the time to confess, all right? Let's, let's respond. to take of the Lord's Supper, and um, and you don't have to be a member uh, of this church to take of the Lord's Supper. You just need to be, you can have a seat right there, guys. Uh, you just have to be a member of God's kingdom, of God's church, all right, and in walking in, in, in obedience to him to the best that you know how. So let's begin. We now come to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper given to us to celebrate in memory of his broken body and his shed blood. It is said that on that night before he was betrayed at the conclusion of the feast of the Passover, which he and his disciples were celebrating, that he took the bread and having blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which has been given for you. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now and, and God, we, we recognize that for our sins, we should, we're all guilty. We are guilty of breaking your law. And because we're guilty of the law, we are deserving of that punishment and that beating. But God, in your goodness and in your grace and in the willingness of your son and the submission of your son, he, he came to this earth and he died and he became